0: grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.
1: This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. I'm talking to you from Vox Media headquarters in New York City, but just for a second, because we're gonna go back in time to California where I interviewed Neil Mohan, chief product officer at YouTube. It basically means he's the number two guy at YouTube. We did this interview at YouTube headquarters in San Bruno which is a thoroughly unremarkable place, but YouTube is there, so that that was good. If this conversation sounds fast, sped up, it's because we had a limited amount of time, so I had to speak quickly with Neil. Uh, I'm glad I got the time I got, because Neil's an important guy and I had a lot of questions for him. Not sure I always got the answers, um, but at least I got to ask him those questions. Maybe we'll have a longer chat at some other time. Anyway, here is me and Neil and Sam Bruno at YouTube headquarters. Hi, Neil. Your chief product officer at YouTube? That's right, hey Peter. Hello, nice to see you again. What is the the shortest way to describe what chief product officer at YouTube means? I think of it as number two guy at YouTube.
2: Well, I'm responsible for building uh, all the products at YouTube that our creators and our viewers um, use every single day. I work very closely with our uh, advertiser-facing team as well. And as you know, Uh, I came from the advertiser side of Google's business, and so really just looking after the products that support our ecosystem. So you touch everything. So we can talk about everything. We have limited time, so we can't talk about everything.
1: Every week or two weeks or three weeks, I read a story about YouTube and content problems. Sometimes they're short stories. Sometimes they're very long stories. I want to ask you about a couple of specific things, but my general question is— Whenever you guys get asked about, we found this piece of content we don't like, or it's objectionable or worse on, on YouTube, the answer you guys usually provide is, we're really big, we're an open platform, we have two billion people, this is a really hard challenge to solve. And my, my big overall question is, can you sort of break down how much of what you're trying to figure out in terms of objectionable content at YouTube is um, a sort of a scale and math and computing problem, and how much of it is... We're a giant platform. We let everyone upload whatever they want, and we're always going to have stuff that people find objection. And it makes it. like, How much of this is a technical problem versus an ideological debate?
2: Well, and I'll and I'm happy to kind of break it down into more detail as well. But just just starting at kind of first principles, I will say that uh, uh, YouTube started, and you know, you've been uh, obviously following it for for quite some time, as a platform where. Anyone could upload a video and share it with the world. and And it does have this basis of an open platform, and freedom of expression is an important concept uh, that goes along with that uh, ability to express yourself. I mean, it's it's YouTube. It's about broadcasting, broadcasting yourself in that in that manner. Having said that, even from the very early days of YouTube, We've always had a set of community guidelines. And I would say that sort of what's happened over the course of certainly the last decade, but in particular over the last couple years, is those community guidelines are the part that need to evolve. And so while it is an open platform and remains that uh, way, the community guidelines need to evolve to. Uh, the nature of YouTube today compared to where it was, you know, a decade plus ago. And part of that is that it's a larger platform. We've kind of grown up, if you will, from this small village where, you know, everybody kind of knew each other. The creators actually knew each other. I mean,
1: originally, if you had a complaint about something you want to take now off YouTube, there was a woman you called. You called her on her cell phone.
2: And, and, you know, the the notion of actually users flagging it uh, was something that worked with yeah. that scale. And now we're kind of a big metropolis where you need sort of rules of the road, uh, which is what our community guidelines have evolved to, and also uh, a more sophisticated enforcement mechanism, which I'm happy to describe as well. And to your point about whether that's technology-driven or not, I think it's a combination of both technology as well as, as you know, we've invested a lot in terms of people.
1: But, I mean, it strikes me that so you, you have this platform, anyone can upload whatever they want, but there are various times where you guys step in and say, we're not going to allow this kind of content and we're going to take steps to take it down, whether it's a couple years ago it was ISIS-related stuff. Uh, now you've mm-hmm. got a set of guidelines for sort of borderline content that you want to, you want to stamp out. But other times, you know, you've got you, – I was at your Brandcast event that's for advertisers, and this is a pledge you've made now a couple of years running. You say you've got something called Google Preferred, which is basically sort of a clean, well-lit space mm-hmm. where you guys say every all the videos in this space that we want you to advertise in, we are going to have a human being review them, mm-hmm. right? So you've already sort of narrowed the focus of anything can go on YouTube to say here's a specific part of YouTube that we've really cleaned up. So when you want to, right, you guys can step in. And do certain things to clean up certain parts of YouTube. Is there a way to sort of scour the entire thing, or is that just too technically difficult? And/or could you change the way YouTube
2: fundamentally operates so it's not an open platform and there are more gates? I would say it's actually, uh, and you know, uh, the way that I think about it is, is actually more the former, in the sense that I do believe, and remember, uh, Google preferred, as as you know very well, is. Is a small subset of our overall corpus, and and but your most valuable real estate, right? It's the,
1: it's the stuff you are telling advertisers this is where we really want you to spend your time and money.
2: Well, it's a par- it's a place that we showcase in our upfront event at uh-huh. Brandcast, but it's certainly not a place where all advertising, all the advertising, is not just limited to that, it right. runs across you know the broad swath of our corpus as well. But to the core of your question, what I would say is, um, you know, our aspiration is to make sure that we are enforcing our community guidelines across the entire swath of our corpus. So let me say that very clearly. And the best way to do that can be a combination. And what I have found, and, you know, machine learning technology and artificial intelligence, of course, is evolving and has made leaps and bounds in the last couple of years. What I have found is that a combination of using machines and humans, people, is really the most effective way. And so let me give you a concrete example of what I mean. Machines are good at operating at scale. So they can, uh, what what we did in the example that you cited, which is around videos around violent extremism, for example, what machines can do is they can enqueue videos that might be candidates for policy violations, takedown, if you will, but they have a harder time making nuanced decisions. And so machines can cover our entire corpus and enqueue a bunch of videos, but it has to be human beings that ultimately make the final decision. But what the machines have done is that they've reduced those decisions down from let's say, you know, hundreds of millions of videos or what have you to, you know, in the whatever it Makes thousands. the work more manageable. It makes the work more manageable, but it's the human being that can tell the difference between uh, an NGO documenting um, wartime atrocities versus a video that could look and feel the same way but is actually a recruitment or propaganda video for, for um, a terrorist organization.
1: And, and is that combination of... Computers and human beings, is it, can that fundamentally sort of scale up to the two billion users growing all the time? Uh, what's your What's your latest stat on how many minutes of, of content are uploaded per minute? I think it's on the order of f- f- 500, 500 hours are uploaded every single minute. Every minute, right? right. Yeah. So it seems like this is sort of an impossible, sort of an impossible task. task.
2: For humans to solve, and ultimately, like if you're really going to solve it, it's going to be computers, or maybe it's just not solvable. I think that um, uh, at the current state of the art, it's a combina- It's going to be a combination of uh, machines and um, uh, also hum- uh, human beings. And I think that um, we've made a lot of progress in the last two years. The work is by no means done. You know, I'll be the first to say that but we just in the last couple of years we've first first and foremost we've updated our policies we've updated over 30 policies to be much more precise and up to date in terms of the type of content we allow and don't allow that work is always ongoing as i said we've hired up to 10,000 human beings to evaluate this content and we've built dozens of machine classifiers to detect this content and what that's resulted in is what you what you see in the transparency report for example that we issue every quarter now, we're on the order, we take down on the order of, I think, eight, nine million videos every single quarter. Now, that represents a tiny fraction of our overall corpus, but that's where, you know, the problematic content tends to be relatively small in terms of number of videos compared to the rest of the corpus. But uh, we are actioning, you know, millions and millions of videos every quarter now. So sometimes the stuff that, that
1: people will find seems extremely pernicious and also extremely hard to find, right? They've they've clipped in obj- objectionable stuff sort of in the middle of a video where it's harder to find, or the objectionable stuff is in the comments where you guys might not have been looking to begin with. I still don't know why you have comments at all. But... Mm-hmm. Um, But then occasionally, like, so there's a BuzzFeed report that came out a couple days ago. said, here's a YouTube star. She has 800,000 followers. She's a 14-year-old girl. She says completely terrible stuff. Here's an example of the video. Um, As of yesterday, it was up. Now you guys have taken it down. Um, There's also a video where she threatens your boss, Susan Wojcicki, uh, with murder. But this is someone who's, I mean, this is not someone sort of at the far edge of of YouTube, right? Mm -hmm. She's got close to a million followers. Um, it's hard to imagine how someone like that can have that kind of popularity and not get picked up sooner than than by a BuzzFeed reporter. How do you deal with sort of that level of problem?
2: Yeah. I mean, what I would say is that there's, there's a few things there. By the way, she's
1: still on the site. You've taken down a couple of her videos, but she's still there.
2: Yeah, and I think that um, it all has to do there, – there's – you know, different cases are different. But what I would say is that the, at the core of it is there is – uh, the policy, you know, it really breaks down into do we have a policy that that channel or video, and, you know, we t- tend to focus with the video as the unit, uh, violating, and is there I- enough of a violation of that, of a specific policy to strike that video, to take it down? Um, that's one element. Uh, the other element is, you know, that what we said, which is, do we detect those videos? Do we try to detect those videos as quickly as possible, and then do we enqueue them for this enforcement action? What, is, what does enqueue mean? Enqueue means um, put, uh, allow, uh, set them up so that uh, they've been identified for a human being to actually take a closer look at. And the way that we set our goals is, we um, of course want to remove policy-violative content as quickly as possible, with as little views by actual people as our users as possible. That's the goal we aspire to. We aspire to that number being zero. And, of course, we're not at zero today. Every day we get better, but our systems are not perfect. Right, so
1: I, I get I get that, like, that you guys have talked about the Christchurch uh, videos and how difficult it was for you to handle that and the steps you took. Um, and, again, I can sort of get—I still don't understand why there's thousands of people sending abductional videos at once. That's all. Different question. Um, but that's that's a technical problem. It's sort of like a, a fire alarm going off, and you guys are trying to rush to deal with it. Mm-hmm. In the case of this this girl, Soph, I guess is her mm-hmm. name. Um, she's been around for a long time. Lots of people have watched her videos. She, it's been out there for, you know, she has a large following. So how do you sort of suss that problem out?
2: Yeah. So as it goes back to these pieces. So one one area— uh, that we are constantly looking at, and actually turns out to be just to give you a little bit of insight into how some of these policies evolve. One area that tends to be quite hard in terms of actually determining where you draw the lines or don't draw the lines turns to be has to be in the in the area of hate and harassment. So we have a set of policies, you know, they're on our website in terms of uh, hate policies on our platform, and of course anything where there's incitement to violence or specific physical threats against an individual, you mentioned one earlier, uh, then that video would be struck. Uh, and, uh, but again, it was sitting out
1: there for a long time, so how does that not surface? So it's a
2: combination of things, right? Like, one is... Does the video actually violate our policies? Are our policies drawn in the right way? We're constantly looking at our policies, including our hate and harassment policies. The second part is: uh, Are we detecting it quickly enough, and are we inf- having an enforcement action on it quickly enough? And so, what I would say is that um, all three of those elements are are evolving, and we're not we're not perfect. We get better every right. day, but we're not perfect about them. I just want to go on one last time. And, and I want so, to, yeah, go so, on. But but on this specific channel, um, there's aspects in terms of you know, there's there's in, there's multiple videos, for example. And so what our raters will do if some of those videos are enqueued as potential candidates for policy action is they will review them against our policies. And in some cases, some of those videos, uh, we, uh, the content might be something that lots of users might find objectionable, but are not violating our policies as they stand today. That doesn't mean that our policies won't evolve over time, but it it might mean and i'm not i'm not speaking specifically about any video on this channel uh, but i'm saying i'm giving you a more general answer that sort of explains why something might look to you like well why didn't they actually take an action on that or but what happened th- this here? is the
1: thing you did take an action once the Buzzfeed story went up. The mm-hmm. Buzzfeed story went up. The, the video was there. Then it went down. The, then another video came down. So obviously, you guys saw the Buzzfeed and story. And that goes or Joe to the Bernstein second. And you. that goes
2: to the second piece that I'm describing, which is, uh, we might have the policy in the right place. We might be happy about our enforcement guidelines around that policy. But then it's also up to um, our machines or our trusted flaggers or or users to flag that content. To then be enforced, and as I said, uh, we strive to be as perfect as we can there, but we are not. And every day we get better at it, but but we're we're not we're not. Uh, it's it's a it's a problem that we'll continue to work to get better at. Um, but our detection. Uh, if your if your question is you know my question do we is, have hundred percent no of no but my question it, is if a you know. Buzzfeed reporter can
1: find this stuff it seems like the people you're paying to find this stuff should be able to get it before he gets and our
2: it. and our machines find an enormous amount of content in terms of the percentage of content that might be potentially violative to the order of what I described which is you know eight nine million videos every quarter are coming down that our machines are finding the vast majority of those videos. Uh, we are finding without even a single human being actually having seen them. So they're, they've been uploaded to our platform. Our classifiers have enqueued them. Raiders have made a judgment on those videos yeah. even before a single user Do could see them. Do you guys
1: ever them. think, I wonder if maybe we just shouldn't have this platform be open? Maybe there should be some sort of process where you need permission to, to
2: upload something? I think about it. I think others here at YouTube think about it. Uh, I wouldn't, frankly, be working at YouTube if I didn't believe that... Um, Uh, Having an open platform where this mission of where uh, anybody on the platform can have a voice no matter where they came from in the world uh, isn't an important founding principle, I do think that that is something that's core to our platform. Uh, but again, having said that, that doesn't mean that, by far, it doesn't mean that anything goes. We do have community guidelines. Those community guidelines have been strengthened, as I said, over 30 times, 30 new policy um, adjustments over the last two years. And we're going to continue to make those, you know, next month, over the next quarter, year, et cetera, uh, so that our community guidelines can evolve with the scale of our platform. Uh, but I think those two things go hand in hand.
1: That eight or nine million pieces of content that you pull down, that's over what period of time? Every quarter. Every quarter, that's eight or nine million pieces of. Objectionable garbage. Video,
2: from, video that comes down that violates comes our Comes down that,
1: that you don't even need a human being to step in. You,
2: Lots of those videos are are videos that were identified by our classifiers. Yeah. Some portion of those videos are actually identified by uh, trusted flaggers or users, etc. Right. And also, the majority of those videos were taken down before before a human be- uh, u- a user saw them. They might have actually been evaluated by uh, an employee, a raider. But a human being, a, a a user, a viewer didn't see.
1: That. So you guys use this stat, and Susan had a similar stat at the Brand Front event to say, you know, th- this many videos were taken down even before a single view uh, happened, and you're justifiably proud of, of doing it. To me, it also seems like, man, there's that much garbage floating around your, that people are injecting into your system that you've got to go deal with, and there's lots of other media companies that don't have to deal with this. They have their own problems, but they don't have people sending eight to nine million pieces of garbage at them every quarter.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know this, and uh, Peter, as I said, you know, um, 500 hours of content uploaded every single minute. The corpus is large. One of the things that I think does make YouTube so special is this diversity of content that you find on the platform. Uh, Everything from, you know, uh, last weekend, for example, uh, somebody tweaked the door on my garage. I had to Basically, I looked it up on YouTube in terms of how to fix my garage door. I was, you know, and I'm not good at that kind of stuff, but I was able to do it after a few minutes. And so there's like, like billions of those types of examples. Yeah, I got a, which we got is a very a, good lamb is,
1: shoulder recipe from YouTube. So thanks. For yeah,
2: that. like that. The and like you know, it probably you know had a positive impact on your life.
1: Tastes good. Uh, <laughs> <You> <laughs> more impressed <laughs> when I make it. I will have it. to so, uh, a pomegranate. You'll have to make Rosemary. it for me next time I'm in New York. So we mentioned this Brandcast event a couple times. This is your big event you do for advertisers. I noticed that Susan didn't spend a lot of time talking about you know the garbage on YouTube, which makes sense. It's a you want to you want to celebrate what you've got there. But when you are talking to advertisers. Um, and publishers for that matter, what what kind of response and feedback are you getting from them today and how has that changed over the last couple of years?
2: Yeah, so, you know, as you can imagine, um, I spend a lot of my time talking to advertisers, Susan does as well, and it's been kind of a continuous conversation. I believe that they have seen the progress over the last couple of years. Um I think that they have seen them in a few buckets. They've seen them in this general bucket of how we approach problematic content on the platform where we remove violative content as quickly as possible. We raise up authoritative uh, voices. We re- reduce, you know, some of the even the borderline content uh, from recommendations, the the change that you mentioned. And so they appreciate that part of it. They also appreciate the fact that we've built in more controls for them to be able to manage where their advertising campaigns run on the platform. And I don't mean, you know, just Google preferred or not, or this channel versus not, but also taking into account what is appropriate for their brands and giving them that level of control. We've worked really hard in terms of giving them um, third-party verification of uh, the nature of their campaigns, where they're running, the types of Videos they run on, working with you know people like Double Verify, IAS, etc. And so you know they appreciate that whole that whole spectrum. And one really big piece, which you know uh, we don't spend, you know, doesn't come up that much, but you know I should highlight to you because you know my insight has been that that's actually been a, a big part of the positive. Um, uh, reception we've gotten from advertisers over the last couple of years is the changes we made to our YPP program, the the YouTube Partner Program, where we established a threshold of 1,000 subscribers or 4,000 hours of watch this time. Is for a regular person who wants to upload
1: videos and... Be a YouTube star or just do it for fun.
2: Correct. Any YouTube creator who is looking to build an audience and monetize it now has to hit a certain threshold on their channel in terms of subs, subscribers, as well as uh, watch hours uh, in order to even apply to uh, uh, the partner program. And then then the channel is manually reviewed before they're actually even allowed into the partner program. And that was something that was received positively, of course, by advertisers because now – there's both a threshold and a human vetting of the channels that are eligible for their ads to run on. Secondly, it was actually, and this was, you know, in retrospect not surprising, but it was a it was a positive, um, uh, uh, a thing, which is our YouTube creators view view that as positive as well because the dollars are now going. To creators that are creating real value for the overall right, ecosystem. Right, there was an initial well.
1: burst to people saying, "You're demonetizing me. You're making it harder for me to make a living." And your response generally was, "The people who were at the margins sort of weren't
2: making real money to begin with." Well, there was there's there's you know there's the the dollar amount and you know uh, you know hitting those thresholds. You know those are those are real thresholds, but they're not you know. Uh, you know, if you're a growing creator, you'll you'll reach that level. But I think the key thing was an evaluation to see that this is original content, content that's adding real value to our ecosystem, and therefore, you know, is something that advertisers, you know, in general would be happy to run on. That's sort of the principle right. now of the YouTube Partner Program. And so, you know, I'm back to your question on advertiser response. For all of those uh, reasons, all of those sort of changes, the response has been positive. Again, you know, are we – does does that mean that sort of every single issue is resolved? No, I, I wouldn't say that. Uh, and it's an ongoing sort of conversation and, frankly, partnership with these brands. But, you know, one of the key things that they also recognize is basically everything else that you saw at Brandcast, which is The audience that they're looking to reach is on YouTube, they're engaged, you know, every time a user opens up the phone, they're there for 60 plus minutes, and so they have a vested interest in working with us to address some of these challenges as well, and that's what they tell us. We're going to take a quick break. We'll see you in a minute.
0: Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity, but giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team.
1: You mentioned watch time and engagement, and for a long time, you guys were really focused on increasing that, getting to this billion-hour mark that Salar, uh,
2: Susan's predecessor, had set. Are you guys still optimizing for engagement, or do you have a new goal now? So there's there's an, there's always been sort of an evolution here, and engagement is sort of just a blurry term. So I'll I'll let me be a little bit more specific with you in terms of sort of how we think about this. Uh, so the first, and what I will say, you know, just again to be very clear. Our first and foremost priority is responsibility around the content that's on the platform. And that means three things. That means, you know, reducing the content that removing the content that's policy violative, you know, raising up authoritative sources when users are looking for information, including, you know, things like Christchurch, where we had our breaking news shelf, and Uh, you know, authoritative ranking in our search results. Mm -hmm. And then reducing content that might be spreading, you know, harmful misinformation. That is our top priority uh, overall. Uh, Our objectives for the company are oriented around that. That's our primary objectives. We also obviously look at things like um, satisfaction of our users. And satisfaction of our users can be viewed in, in many different ways. And so that's where we measure you know, how our users are using our platform. We also have metrics in terms of satisfaction of our creators. And so creators obviously are looking to uh, grow their audience, but they're also looking to establish more connections with their audience. So features that we have, like, you know, you you can do now community posts and you can do a YouTube version of stories. Mm -hmm. Those are the features that go into those. And creators are also looking to make money on the platform. And so that's advertising, you know, what we so talked about So there's a lot brands. of stuff
1: you want to do, but for a while you had this overall company goal, we want to get to a billion hours of watch time, and that was a big focus, and you did a bunch of things to get there. So has that been replaced with some So specific? our top-level
2: goals are the ones that I described yeah. in terms of we put them in this bu- bucket of responsibility for the content on the platform. Then I'm describing sort of some of the some of the other goals that exist, including user facing goals, creator facing goals. We have advertiser facing goals as well, and that's the way that um, our objectives uh, are organized for for overall YouTube uh, this year and we try to set those on a yearly basis uh, and that includes things like you know um you know how long users are spending time on the platform, but also includes things like Surveys that we run, for example, after, you might have seen them. You know, you might get them after you watch a video. How satisfied were you with this in terms of YouTube recommending it to? Never asked,
1: but I will, I'm happy to, okay. to tell you <laughs> if you want. Have you been satisfied? Yeah, right. I like it. I like it. we're so, my kids getting into it. So
2: yeah, so those are those are some of the, those are the ways that we, uh, because I think that you know, and again, as the person responsible for the products, my experience has been. Those types of goals are the things that, you know, sort of prove the efficacy of the product for our creators and our users.
1: YouTube's always been free. And then you guys have introduced this thing called YouTube Red, which is both the music service and then also sort of be a premium content. And then again at this Brandcast event, you guys said, you, and you guys were putting money into making your own uh, movies and TV shows. You mean YouTube Originals. YouTube Originals. Yeah. And then at the Brandcast event, you said, actually, all, all the YouTube Originals we do from now on, we're going to make these free for users. So what does that tell us about the subscription product you guys have?
2: So the subscription product uh, is called YouTube Premium now, so it's been rebranded. And we also have Within that, um, a subscription product called YouTube Music Premium, which is, uh, as you know, we have built our standalone YouTube music app, which is around music, and uh, obviously it still features video because it's YouTube, but also has a kind of audio-forward type experience yeah. with it, as you know, as I'm sure you've played around we with had, it. We had Lior Cohen to tell us all about it. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yes, Lior. Yes. I remember that. I remember that podcast fondly. <laughs> <laughs> There's Um, an unedited version. It's even better. All right. I'll have to ask him about that. Uh, So YouTube Music Premium is the subscription service Mm -hmm. for that where you get background offline without ads interruptions. And so that business has been growing, uh, continues to grow. We keep adding subscribers. Our goal there is to continue to roll it out worldwide. Uh, I think we're in um, over forty countries now. But what does it uh, mean when you take this thing media? that you had
1: to get you you had to subscribe to get, and now you're saying we're going to bring this basically in front of the paywall? There's a whole move across media to get people to pay to to get access to stuff, and you're saying here's stuff that we're actually going to put in front of
2: the wall. Yeah, I think that's a good question, and I would just I would say that, um, uh, and I you know and and Susan's talked about this before as well where I, I just I think YouTube is different than a lot of those other platforms, and I don't mean just in terms of its business model, obviously you know we're an advertising supported platform primarily uh e- you know even though our subscription business is growing and growing nicely, and we're 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 happy with the results there, and we want to make that global as well, just like as our advertising businesses is, so we're going to continue to do that and have both those pieces. But you know, one of the one of the things that we thought about w- was uh, what is the most immediate way to give as wide of an audience to some of this original content that we have been producing, and it's something our advertisers were asking for too, which is could they be associated with some of these YTO productions right. that we had, and so we made the decision for in, in this in this. Um, Brandcast to actually so i'm to, I'm reading as a
1: shift, you guys saying we have this stuff and not enough people are seeing it. We'll do better if we bring it out.
2: I mean, you just I mean you know the, the scale of our ad supported yeah. business um uh relative to where subscription businesses are. The other point that I would say is um and and I think that we need to do we need to be clear about this, but music is front and center in our, in our subscription business, and we Music is one of those habits that's a daily habit, and, you know, everybody listens to music on a daily basis, and um, we want that to sort of be a star when it comes to our, our subscription service, and so—and uh, we find that, you know, users that—you uh, uh, know, our music listeners are are— our users that tend to be happy with our subscription service, and so our orientation, and, I, and I'm sure Lior talked about this as well, for our paid subscribers is music is music first. So, two more questions, and then then you're allowed out of here.
1: You have this was it YouTube Live. What's the, what's the OTT service called? Uh, YouTube TV. YouTube TV. Yeah. So, it's essentially another version of the cable bundle. I pay you guys, I think now, $45 a month. To throw uh, the we just raised Move it uh,
2: $49.99.
1: Right. And so, you raised it $49.99, you added more channels, I think you're still probably losing All Everyone who has a version of this basically is saying, we're losing money on this, and we've got to sort of raise our prices eventually. Of all the people who are trying to sell me TV over the internet, you guys seem most situated to be able to say. We are going to sell this at a significant loss, so we can build up scale. And by the way, we have a reason to do this because if we build, if we get a lot of people to subscribe to to YouTube TV, we're really good at advertising. Mm-hmm. So why haven't you guys, instead of raising your price to fifty bucks, gone to twenty bucks or some bargain basement price
2: and tried to l- get as many subscribers as possible? Um, you know, it really is a matter of um, you know, kind of optimizing for what we think will be. Uh, a business that continues to grow in terms of, you know, households that we're bringing online and, you know, healthy economics of the business. And as you said, um, you know, getting to enough scale in terms of subscribers where uh, it's an attractive proposition for our brands and advertisers who are already telling us that, you know, hey, um, and that's the reason why, and actually it was, it was a lot of uh, brand and advertiser input that had us feature YouTube TV in the way that you saw at uh, at Brandcast a couple of weeks ago, where, where for the first time ever, we actually featured YouTube TV inventory as a lineup within Google Preferred. Right.
1: But you guys, just to beat this in the ground because it's confusing, I understand why maybe Hulu or some of the other people, AT&T, why these people are trying to figure out how they can get close to profitability and and are sort of reassessing that business. But you guys seem, you have billions of dollars, you've spent billions of dollars on all kinds of things in the past. This is Directly a, a business that you could benefit from. Why not just blow it out?
2: So some of the so, so there was two types of feedback that we've gotten since we launched YouTube TV, and, and as you know, it's been it's been in the market now for a couple of years. One is you know very positive in terms of the product, right? People love the product features, the DVR on the cloud, the power of you know Google powered recommendations on content, like all the magical stuff of like oh wow my my Warriors game was recorded, and oh by the way it didn't cut it off with two minutes left, it did the whole thing, like that kind of stuff. So, we've gotten a lot of product features, uh, positive feedback about the core product itself. Another area where we've gotten feedback is the channel lineups and the content that we've had. And so, one of the things that we have done in response to user feedback Periodically, over the course of the last couple of years, is actually ad content. So the bundle that started when we launched it is not the bundle that right. we it keeps, have today. It
1: keeps getting fatter and we, fatter. We've added channels because
2: yeah. we we got feedback. For example, um, you know, there, there's there, sports is a very big use case on YouTube TV. We got feedback that hey, um, you know, if I'm a, if I'm an NBA fan, I have expectations that you're going to give me pretty broad coverage of NBA games. We got feedback that there are certain channels uh, that were very attractive to users, even though they're not. Not sports fans. And so those were some of the channels um, that we added, for example, in the most recent announcement. I uh, still
1: think if any company is going to yeah. come out and, and not replicate the, t- the cable bundle, it should be you guys. I,
2: I don't think that we're at the point where you know, we're nearly where, you know, some of those, some of the existing sort of products are in terms of scale of our channels. I think that we, at this point, feel pretty comfortable about the size of the bundle that we have. Uh, and I think that you should look for kind of more product innovation there, more ways that we feature content in the future. So we're going to continue to invest in the product. And, um, you know, we're we're adding, you know, households every single week, every single month. And Andrew so, is
1: waving at me furiously. So one last question. Yeah. Um, we, we know what your, your your digital video business looks like. We've been talking about that. We know what your OTT business looks like. They're still linear TV, right? They're doing upfronts this week, giant $70, $80 billion business. You guys tried a long time ago to get into that business. It seems like it's still pretty ripe for you to enter there. What, what's your strategy for conventional linear TV ad business? I mean, I think
2: the, the business that uh, we like, that you'll continue to see us invest in, that's most related to that is our YouTube TV product uh, because we think that while, uh, and and those are a lot of the partners that we work with. We work very closely with a lot of those linear broadcast and cable partners. It's just that we think that uh, the way that we wrap those channels up in the product that we have is really the way of the future. And our innovation, just like other Google products, is going to be in terms of what we can do for users in terms of a new way of actually consuming that content.
1: Neil, I have so many more questions, but... I'm going to get tackled by this ferocious- little We'll have to do
2: it again. you got to come out to YouTube again.
1: I'll come out again. All right. Thank you, Neil. Appreciate it. That's right. Thanks, Peter. Thanks again to Neil for his time. Thanks again to the folks at YouTube for doing that recording for us. Now we're going to head back to New York, give you a little bonus content. We're going to talk TV and podcasting with my colleague Todd Vanderwerf from Vox. Todd is one of the smartest TV writers around, has a new podcast out. We're going to tell you all about that right now.
3: Hey, Todd. How are you? Hey, Peter.
1: Good to be here. Good to be in, you're in California, right? Santa Monica, somewhere fun?
3: I'm in Los Angeles. I'm in Koreatown right now.
1: That's where you should be if you're going to write about TV.
3: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And if you want to eat Korean food, come to Koreatown. It's really good.
1: All right. I'm going to come see you there soon at the Line Hotel or yeah, at David Chang thing. You have a new podcast out. It's called Primetime. It's about TV. Yeah. listen to the first episode. It's very cool. I want to talk to you about that, but I want to talk to you about TV, first okay. of all. Okay, okay. When this comes out, we'll be several days past the last episode of Game of Thrones. But that doesn't mean we can stop talking about Game of Thrones. Let's keep talking about Game of Thrones. Absolutely. This is, this is of course, a big problem for Vox.com and everyone else who writes about media because we don't have Game of Thrones to, to write about anymore, but we'll solve that in a separate episode. I, I want to know, you were, you were a critic at large. What did you think of this season of Game of Thrones?
3: Oh, it's a mess. It's, it's a mess. Like, I'm enjoying it well enough. Like, I, I always enjoy watching the show. It's always a fun show to watch. It's skillfully put together. The scale, the spectacle, all like nothing else on TV. The storytelling's a mess. Like, there's just no other way to describe it. This final season has, has taken what feels like about three seasons worth of storylines and compressed them into six episodes. And it is bouncing all over the place. Episodes kind of begin and end with no rhyme or reason. There's been good stuff in it. That second episode that was mostly just people waiting to die was really good. But other than that, I've really struggled with it.
1: There's two camps of people that I can at least find online. There's people who who say what you say about, about Game of Thrones. Uh, I see a lot of them on Twitter and Twitter tends to elicit negative reactions. And then I'm assuming there's a big group of people that says, I like watching Game of Thrones and that's cool because there were dragons and those people died and that was fun. Do you think that the group of people who are unhappy with Game of Thrones is a significant one or just that we're hearing a lot from them because they, they type online?
3: I think it is a significant one and maybe not in the way you'd think. Now, here, here's, here's sort of the evidence I have for this. My sister is not on Twitter. My sister is a major Game of Thrones fan. And every week when I call her, she'll say, this episode was good, and then she'll complain about it. Five, six different things. She just hated from it. So, like, Mm -hmm. I think that when sort of there's this this perception we have in our lives. Like, if you here's an example: if you pay money for a movie ticket, you are more likely to say you like the movie because you've invested money and time. Like, you really have to be like turned off by the movie to say I hated that movie. But then, like six months later, when you think about that movie, if you didn't like it, that's what you're gonna remember. I think the long-term reputation of Game of Thrones will be hurt by a thing. A lot of the things the people who hate it are yelling about now. I could be wrong. You know, I've been wrong about this stuff before. But you look at a show like Lost, which when that show ended, its reputation was as this sterling, amazing sci-fi TV show. And then the finale, when that finale aired, the reviews of it were mostly kind – and yet, over time, the perception of it being a terrible finale has sort of taken hold. I disagree with that perception. I think it's a good finale, yeah. but I, I, I get why that happened. So I think a similar thing will happen with Game of Thrones. Probably right now, most people still enjoy it. You, I do think you're,
1: it you're yeah. me. You're leading me where I, where I wanted to go, which is how much of, of do you think the way we think about TV is influenced by the way we talk about TV on the internet, right? And Lost was the sort of first— Incredibly widely discussed internet show, um, and I think about people reacting to the end of The Sopranos, which is sort of around the same time, but mm-hmm. so definitely pre-Twitter, pre-most social media. And I'm wondering, sort of, what we would think of shows like The Sopranos or go back to any major show if we were if if we were doing this for fun. And also, by the way, if there was a commercial reason for media to be talking about media in the way that this happens prior to all this, right? Mm-hmm. You might have worked for Entertainment Weekly or Time Magazine, and you. Times, and you might have had thoughts about the show, um, frankly, but they probably would have been buried in the back of the newspaper because it was TV writing. No one cared about it. Um, but there just would not be a large audience discussing this stuff and, and reading stuff like the stuff you write.
3: Yeah. And, you know, that's really has changed the conversation. You know, I have been like reading about Star Trek fandom back in the 1960s, and it was similar to what we have online. Like they had a lot of the same things. They had, you know, like fan petitions and things like that to try and get people to change what was happening in the show but there wasn't the immediacy of the internet to really like put that up to a fever pitch. So I do think there's something to the idea that the internet has made this a different conversation. The internet is certainly why I have a job. The way I write about television is heavily influenced by internet recap culture. Like I can... I'm sure I could do it at a print publication if somebody asked me to but like it's it's a very different thing to have come up writing, you know, 2000-word deep dives into episodes of the Big Bang Theory which is literally a thing I did for a while from like writing the tight pithy 500-word review of some pilot that nobody's going to watch. So, I do think there is some truth to the way we talk about TV has been super influenced by the internet, but I would actually go back a little bit further. Um, I'm not here to plug this, but last year I, I published a book about the X-Files. And like looking back at the internet discussion around the X-Files in the 90s, it's it's exactly what we have now. And it was starting to sort of percolate out into the wider culture to the degree that like the show's writers would like go online and read what people were saying and sort of respond right. to that in real time. Yeah.
1: I mean, harder to get find that stuff. And that's still people were using AOL to get onto the internet. So this stuff was not as widely yeah. Yeah, and by the way, as an aside, uh, you mentioned uh, Big Bang Theory. I always think about Big Bang Theory when we write about monoculture, and this is the last big show. You know, you can debate what Game of Thrones' real ratings are, but they're basically analogous to. to to Big Bang Theory, Uh, and Big Bang Theory has been going on for a very long time, and with very few exceptions, there's almost no discussion of Big Bang Theory in in popular media, certainly not in in my Twitter timeline, certainly not among the smart people like you who are writing about TV. You can correct me if I'm wrong, and you've been writing about it for years. And to me, there just seems to be a big fundamental gap between what smart people on the Internet are saying about TV and the state of TV and then Mm. the way TV is actually consumed, which is there's 13 to 15 million-ish people watching Big Bang Theory and a million others – not a million others – many other shows that also don't get mentioned in in the – you know, golden age of TV conversation. And it seems to me that that gap is meaningful and important.
3: Yeah, I do think it is. Now, one thing that has happened is real-time ratings of just about everything have slumped. Game of Thrones is the exception, where it gets a little bigger every year. Even Big Bang Theory has fallen off from its height, but certainly like these shows on CBS that lots and lots of people watch like NCIS would be another example. They're mm-hmm. not shows that we're talking about in the pages of vox.com or you know anywhere. Like when I worked at the AV club, we did we weren't really talking about them there. Though we had robust Big Bang Theory coverage, which I will I will take great pride in. But yeah, like the conversation is still really tilted toward hour-long dramas, it's really tilted toward a small handful of networks like HBO, AMC, FX, Netflix and Hulu, like those are kind of the big five, and you'll occasionally get a showtime in there, you'll get a show like This Is Us that's on a broadcast network that everybody wants to talk about, but Really, our coverage decisions are kind of guided by this core audience of super in, tuned-in TV geeks. And sometimes it really expands, like we saw with Breaking Bad and we're currently seeing with Game of Thrones, so a lot of people are curious. And sometimes you just get those TV geeks, but, like, you can build a website off that. Like, that's, that's one of the things we did with TV Club when I was at the AV Club, and, like, one of the reasons we make coverage decisions at Vox is like we know we're going to get that audience to read about it. It's a lot harder to get right. people to so, read about other stuff. Yeah.
1: So that so that's what I'm trying to figure out. Is this because the the and maybe we should bring our bosses from Vox.com in here. But but I would assume I keep hearing they want to reach a lot of people. Um, a lot of people are watching Big Bang Theory. Is the idea that. The people who are watching Big Bang Theory aren't interested in reading about it and discussing it, or is there just some giant cultural blind spot that not only Vox.com but the New York Times and Vanity Fair and The Ringer and Men's Health I saw uh, this week, everyone who's doing just wall-to-wall Game of Thrones coverage is missing um, Uh, by not writing obsessively about other shows that are also popular.
3: I think that there are a number of reasons Game of Thrones specifically became that show. But I think, I think we should mm-hmm. talk about the reasons that the Big Bang Theory did not. And like, yes, there really is not that much of an interest in reading about that show. Like, we, uh, certainly we did it for years at the AV Club and we had a healthy audience, but it was never as big as the audience for the people who read about this show Community, which was on opposite Big Bang Theory, got maybe a sixth or a seventh of its viewership, but its fan base was so rabbit and read everything about that show that like we could basically like plan our weeks around giving those people content and like Big Bang Theory did fine but that audience was not As excited. It's important to remember that for the vast majority of people who watch TV, it's disposable. Like they're not going to immediately go online and be like, I got to read about it. And like the Big Bang Theory is like the perfect example of a disposable show. It's a very well made disposable show, but you probably don't think about it too long after it's over.
1: This is super helpful. This has bugged me forever. And now I have an answer, and you speak with authority. So I'm going with it. Um, (laughs) One last thing before I ask you about your podcast is just a plug for everyone else. I re binged uh, uh, The Sopranos. The last oh, couple months, yeah. uh-huh. comfort binged it. Uh, it held up great. Um, and the more I got into it, the more I kept thinking, I want to read more about this. And so I would Google. And I inevitably kept finding your recaps you'd done for the AV Club, uh, also known as The Onion. Uh, and I just want to tell everyone that, that you've done some of the most amazing TV writing I've ever seen. Um, and even if you don't watch The Sopranos, you should go back and read that. But definitely go back and read Todd's stuff on The Sopranos. It's well, great. Thank so you that's so just much. my plug for yeah. you, Todd. Mm. Well, thank
3: you. Um, now let's talk about your podcast. It's called. Yeah prime time it is a podcast about the power of television and how it affects and reflects our culture our first season is about the presidency and how that sort of plays off of television. We're talking about like times TV has told stories about the presidency. You're thinking about the West Wing, 24. And then we're also talking about times that presidents have used TV to their advantage, which is coming up later in the season. We'll be talking about folks like Ronald Reagan and Richard Nixon.
1: That all sounds good. How did no one else have the word of the name Primetime for a, a podcast?
3: I am thanking my lucky stars every day because when we pitched that name, I I was so sure somebody else had it and nobody else does. Like there's a couple of things that have the word primetime in them, but nobody's just got a podcast called primetime. And like the primary reason that we should make many seasons of this show is because we have that name now and no one can take it from us.
1: So I listened it's Amazing. Um, I'm sure someone in a, in a, in a bathroom or bedroom <laughs> somewhere is going to say, I have that and I've registered and I'm, I'm emailing your general counsel right now. Um, <laughs> I listened to the first episode. It's about The West Wing. It's great. Uh-huh. What surprised you making that episode about The West Wing? So the the theory, right, is you're going you're going back and you're you're talking to contemporary critics about that show and how it does and doesn't reflect the White House and in politics in general.
3: What surprised you while while you were doing it? I kind of came into that episode thinking that my feelings on The West Wing were set. Like I thought it was a pretty good show that failed at being a great one. And I kind of ended up feeling like it was both worse and better than I remembered it. Like, I watched a bunch of The West Wing just to talk about it. And there were so many episodes that were so clumsy, but like the comfort food aspect of it is so much better than I remembered. Like, I could watch four, five, six episodes of that in a row and just be totally blissed out. It's like it's such a good show on Netflix because it's just constantly giving you good feelings. And like, Mm -hmm. one of the things, one of the things I think we're interested in on primetime is. Not necessarily how the shows uh, deal with stuff, but how we talk about the shows and the ways that we talk about the West Wing and how it's influenced our political culture are so weird. And like nothing that West Wing creator Aaron Sorkin could have predicted, should have predicted, would have predicted. And like that show's frozen in time, but here we are still talking about it and the way we talk about it continues to evolve. And that to me is really interesting.
1: It's very funny to think of Aaron Sorkin, who not only dislikes the internet, but dislikes bloggers and Twitter and pretty much everything about internet culture and I'm sure dislikes podcasts, um, thinks about us talking about the way the internet is talking about his TV show on a podcast. Do you think? Um, Aaron, gives do him you great joy.
3: Do you think Aaron Sorkin has ever listened to a podcast? Like, do you think he has like? Subs- he's probably subscribed to like the Joe Rogan Experience or something.
1: Yeah, I was gonna say the Brett Easton Ellis thing. Maybe. <laughs> maybe. He's been on the Brett Easton Ellis podcast. That sounds good. And I, I love Sorkin, and this was a show that I didn't get to until sort of like midway through the the Bush mm-hmm. administration, and so I, I definitely understand the idea of comfort binging it um, in time Times like these. And then the next episode is about 24, right?
3: Yeah, and that was a show where, like, I had known a lot of this because I was just starting to cover television when 24 was on. And, like, I so I knew about the ways that it intersected with the Bush administration's torture policy and, like, how it became this weird defense of a real-life law that was pretty abhorrent in my opinion, and, like, I, I would hope in most people's opinions. But, like, it became this defense of it from people like uh, an actual Supreme court justice. We turn that up and then like the secretary of Homeland security, like all these people in the Bush administration were like, this fictional character gets results from torture air go. And like the people on 24 have like no responsibility for that I don't think but at the same time they must have thought it was kind of weird and like they sort of leaned into it and I'm not sure what to think about that
1: and I can't imagine what the Trump administration thinks about it but I can (laughs) guess Um, Todd this is great if you like listening to Todd talk about TV and you should you can get a lot more of it go to well you know how to find a podcast it's prime time from Vox Media Thanks again to Neil Mohan for his time, the folks at YouTube for recording that for us. Thanks to you guys for listening. Thanks to our sponsors. Thanks to Golda Arthur, my excellent producer, and Joel Robb, my also excellent editor. If you like this episode, tell someone else about it. You can do it at Apple Podcasts or Twitter. You can do skywriting if you like, whatever works. Thank you for listening. We will see you next week.